to all the young people wounded by our churches. Forgive us. Forgive us for our broken institutions. Forgive us for our broken relationships. Forgive us for all the ways you felt abandoned, like you didn't belong. Forgive us for our attempts to control, our refusal to listen. Forgive us for our fear of questions and love of certainty. Forgive us for our judgment, for withholding grace. Forgive us for hiding our failures, our stories, our hearts. Forgive us. We believe in new beginnings. We believe mending wounds takes time, but is worth every second. We believe we are better together. We believe in you. That video likely stirred something up inside of many of us. Maybe you're a young person who has felt hurt by our church or someone in our church or by another church at some point in time. I'm sorry for any part of our stories that we've withheld from you out of our own insecurities. Serving with kids for the past 14 years, I believe that the future of the church is going to be in wonderful hands when you guys take over. As you feel God stirring up the spirit inside of you and you feel God giving you passions and you see those passions coming out in the way you live, um, I will be the first one to sign up to follow you guys towards the things that God has called you towards. But chances are there's even some adults in this room who may be well into their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond who have been hurt by churches in the past too and have been waiting their whole life for an apology like that. And so if that's your story, I am sorry for that as well. Some of you may feel a little perplexed. I mean, why do we apologize? Don't we as a church commit significant financial resources to our next generation ministries and try to build the very best program we can for our kids? We do, yes. Yet, things are sometimes more complex than they appear to be on the surface. A member of our church recently shared with me a practice that she lives out in an attempt to help her remember that sometimes there are hidden things going on in people's lives under the surface that we may not easily be able to see. And I wanted to share 
about her practice with you. And so I asked her to write an overview of it. She said, For years, our kitchen cabinet doors, when opened, have fluttered with newspaper clippings taped to the inside. They are obituaries of family and friends. They are there to honor the hyphen, the years between birth and death. Seeing their names during the daily activities of setting the table or putting away dishes triggers memories. Dear faces flash across my mind's eye. Years of shared experiences or family connections flood back as if they had occurred only last week. This tradition began decades ago. There was a young man who rode his bike to work. His route regularly took him past my work location. He always waved, and most of the time he was smiling. One day, out of the blue, he was gone. The news reported that his death was a result of suicide. I felt shocked, extremely sad, and a little betrayed by those smiles and waves. Could it be that someone outwardly seeming settled and okay was actually in pain and lonely with no one to turn to in time of need? Those thoughts have stayed with me over the years. I don't always remember to act on this prompting, but thinking about Kelly does help me at times to be more intentional about recognizing and valuing individual people. Her line, could it be that someone outwardly seeming settled and okay was actually in pain and lonely with no one to turn to in time of need instantly had me thinking about our children, our youth. Currently, we have over 418 kids whose families call faith home. But far more important than that number is the names behind that number. This week, we included an insert into your bulletin, and I'd love for you to take that out. It has the 418 names on them, and I want you to take a second to look at the names on this list. See if you see any that you know. Think about your relationships with those kids and youth. If you don't know any of the children or youth here at Faith, think about the ones you do know in your life. And what I want to do is I want to change that quote just a little bit. Could it be that one of our kids, one of the names on the sheet of paper in your hand, who outwardly seems settled and okay, is actually in pain and lonely with no one to turn to in time of need. Though I wish that was a rhetorical question, it's not. We know the answer. It's yes. There are children and youth in our midst that are in pain and struggling with a wide variety of things. And they don't always know where to turn. I have another question for you. Have you ever been in a situation and you quickly realized that you were in over your head? 
This happened to me four weeks ago in our high school youth group on Sunday evenings. We had partnered with a local organization, Stand Up For Your Sister, and what we had done is we had separated the guys and girls. Uh, usually we're together, but this night we had separated them, and we handed out anonymous surveys. And we asked every hard question that we could imagine asking to our young people. We asked them questions like, do you regularly view pornography? Have you ever intentionally hurt yourself? Have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Do you ever question your salvation? Do you ever struggle to believe in the promises of God for your life? Question by question, are youth circled yes or are they circled no? It was dead silent in both rooms. All you could hear was the pens and pencils scratching against the paper as the kids, question by question, went through those surveys. The tension was palpable. We collected the surveys back. Again, no names, completely anonymous. We shuffled them up, and we handed them back out to the youth. If the anonymous survey in your hand was marked yes, as we went through this survey, question by question, a second time, they stood up to represent that person whose survey they were holding. And even though, even though our youth were able to stay anonymous in this process, they were also able to be seen. They were able to say something without having to say something. And they all quickly realized that they were not alone. After standing up for each other, I shared my testimony, and one of the leaders of Stand Up For Your Sister shared her testimony with the girls. I shared mine with the guys. And then our youth had a chance to share. And share they did. They talked about things that they had never spoken out loud to another living soul before. They shared these burdens with each other. They shared these burdens with their leaders. And then all of a sudden, these burdens that were initially all their own, that they had never shared with anyone else, were being carried with them by their leaders, were being carried with them by their peers. We recollected the surveys, and we compiled the data. And I want to share some of the statistics that we learned from those surveys with you. But I want to lay down a few housekeeping rules first. Parents, uh, if you're the parent of a high schooler and you know that your child happened to be there that night, and some of the statistics I'm about to share are likely going to set off alarms in your head. And what I would like to caution you against is caution you against Busting down the door to these conversations if that's not the kind of relationship that you have with your student. Because if it were me back when I was young, that wouldn't have felt safe to me. If they're here hearing this message today, maybe start with this question. Hey, what do you think about what Chris said today? And see where they allow the conversation to go. And if you're not there yet, spend time with your youth. Spend time learning more about them. Spend time being interested in the things that they're interested in. And through prayer and hopefully time, you will be able to have these conversations. To our young people, as I share some of these anonymous statistics, 
If you were there, you may feel temptation to be shame, to experience, to have shame, to experience shame or judgment from us. And I want to say to you that you have nothing to be ashamed about. In fact, I think all of us owe a deep level of gratitude to you for being bold enough and willing enough to share your stories with us because I guarantee you there are adults in this room that are going to hear some of these statistics and a piece of them will come alive again because they too thought they were alone and through these they realized they're not. And the last thing, it's really easy to tune out statistics for us because they come at us from all different angles. And most of the time we look at statistics and we think, you know what, that probably doesn't really apply to us. Who knows where they gathered it, how they gathered it, um, if they gathered it from the Midwest or the coast or whatever. And so we tune out statistics thinking, you know what, they don't really represent us. These ones do. These ones are from our kids. These ones represent our church. These ones represent us. We had about 40 students who filled these surveys out. And here's some of the things we learned. We asked them, do you struggle with self-worth? 81% of our kids said yes. Do you ever question your salvation? 65% of our kids said yes. Do you ever struggle to believe the promises of God in your life? 81% of our kids said yes. We ask him, have you ever had suicidal thoughts before? 46% of our kids said yes. We ask them, do you keep these struggles to yourself to make yourself look like a better follower of Jesus? 51% of our kids said yes. And we ask them, are these issues keeping you from following Jesus with your everything? And 73% of our kids said yes. A month later, today, the adrenaline from that event has worn off. And I catch myself wondering, how do we change? How do we become a church where it's okay to talk about the hard things in life? It's okay to talk about our struggles and not feel like we have to hide them. And I'm not saying we all do that, but a lot of us do. How do we help each other and our youth live in greater freedom in Christ than these statistics suggest that they currently live? How do we ourselves live in greater freedom? Which brings me to Mark 9, where we're going to talk out of the Bible today. And starting in verse 33, we come to a passage that begins with the disciples measuring themselves up against each other. So in Mark 9, starting in verse 33, we read, And they came to Capernaum, 
And when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, he's asking the disciples this, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. At this point, the disciples had seen Jesus do a number of incredible things. They had saw Jesus feed thousands of people with one boy's lunch. They had saw Jesus walk on water. They had saw Jesus calm a storm at sea. They had seen Jesus heal a number of diseases. They had seen Jesus speak with authority. At this point, Peter had already told Jesus. He had said back to Jesus, Jesus, you are the Christ. But still up to this point, the fact that humility the fact that humility is a critical part of following Jesus had not fully sunk in for them yet. On the way to Capernaum, the disciples were trying to work out the pecking order. Of course, Jesus was number one, right? No one could do what Jesus could do. But who was number two? The disciples' silence in response to Jesus' questions is indicative of the fact that they knew this wasn't a conversation that they should be having. But they had it anyway. Their pride got in the way, as mine does so often. So what does Jesus do? We pick up uh, in verse 35. And so he, being Jesus, sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to be first, be last. Serve everyone. The disciples wanted a title. They wanted a title like captain or right-hand man. They wanted something that denoted their worth and their value. Yet if they wanted to be the greatest, what they didn't realize is what they needed to do was choose humility over status. Jesus lived out the ultimate humility. One of the last things that he would have done for his disciples was wash their feet at the Last Supper. You see, back in Jesus' day, all the roads weren't good. Animals shared the roads with people. And after a day's journey, when you arrived at your destination, your feet would need to be cleaned. It was a job that was typically reserved for slaves or servants, and it was not a fun one, I could imagine. But Jesus didn't care about the details of the act. He cared about the disciples. That's what it looks like to be last of all. That's what it looks like to serve all. Continuing on in Mark 9, we get to verse 36. And it says, he took a child... Jesus did. He took a child and put the child in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Following his point about humility, Jesus scoops up a child And says to his disciples, whoever receives one such child as this one receives me. And not just me, but God the Father who sent me. 
By doing so, what he's telling his disciples is he's telling his disciples, when you welcome a child, you welcome me. The fact that Jesus took up a child is significant here. We don't know the age of the child from the passage, but if you have young people in your life, think about them for a second. I have four kids, one seven, four, three, and six months. My seven-year-old, I don't take him up in my arms anymore. Like when he wants affection, he comes at me like a linebacker, and I go down, he does not come up. It's not how it works. My four-year-old, she'll let me hold her occasionally, but it's not her preference. But my three-year-old, my three-year-old, she's a cuddler, and she loves to be carried around in daddy's arms, and we have sweet times of just hanging out and talking. That's what I picture is going on in this passage. Jesus taking up a preschooler and by doing so, saying to the disciples and everyone else present that this child belongs here. This child belongs with me. The disciples were interested in being the greatest, but I'm not particularly particularly interested in knowing who the greatest in this room is. What I am interested in is knowing how we all of us, could become the greatest church for our youth? The answer to that question comes in two parts. First, what can each of us individually do that will reflect this value that Jesus teaches us about in Mark 9? And second, what can we do as a church to ensure that our young people have a space where their faith can flourish? Individually, the first thing I think we all need to do is I think we need to notice the children in our sphere of influence and welcome them into our lives just as Jesus did. Going back to my speculation about the fact that this child was a preschooler, I have one more thing that I think is true of this passage, and I'm willing to stake my 14-year career on this fact. I don't think that Jesus randomly scooped up just any child. I think he would have spent time getting to know this child, and I think this child knew him well enough to feel safe with him. Because if you have a preschooler, or if you know my preschoolers, they don't just allow themselves to be picked up by anyone. You see, if you're a stranger to my preschoolers and you come try to pick them up, there's going to be a scene. (laughs) It's just how it works. And you won't be teaching anything to anyone. But Jesus picks this child up. And he says to the disciples, this child belongs. It could be the children in your life groups. It could be the children who live next door to you. It could be nieces, nephews, grandsons, granddaughters. If you have kids, it's definitely your own kids. But anywhere your life commonly intersects with children, take note of them. Get down on their level when you talk to them. Take interest in the things that interest them and then follow up on those things the next time you see them. By doing so, you are showing those children that they belong. You're showing those children that they are a part of the body of Christ. You're welcoming them to the table. At Easter, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, my family played pitch. 
13-point pitch for those of you who have similar uh, traditions. There's a debate. But for years, I hung on the side of those card tables, watching what was going on, waiting for my chance to be invited to the table. By the time I was invited to the table, I had watched so much that I understood the game inside and out, and I could compete with anyone, in my family at least. (laughs) But I wonder, how many more memories would we have had together if they would have invited me to the table at a younger age? Maybe I wouldn't have been as good, but we still would have been together. A second thing that I think we need to do is we need to live our lives honestly in front of our children. I come back to the question on our survey. Do you keep these struggles to yourself to make yourself look like a better follower of Jesus? To which 51% of our youth said yes. I think we as adults are at fault for that. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good too. Good. Right? That's a conversation we play out many times. It can be really hard for us to share the hard parts of life. And I'm not advocating you go uh, share everything to everyone. But I do think that we should have a group of people that knows what's going on in our lives. And when appropriate, I think that group of people should include children and youth. Here's an example of how that might play out. Um, I've been pushing our high schoolers to be very vulnerable with each other. And we're all at different places, and all of them are at different places. Some of them have been doing incredibly brave things by sharing their lives. And since we've pushed them as a church, me as a representative of this church leading them, how dare we not be willing to do the same thing? So, money where your mouth is, right? Uh, My wife and I uh, were on a date two weeks ago. And we have this book of lists. Um, It's what we pull out to kind of help us spark conversation when we can't think of uh, what to talk about except children or work. You know, we try to stay away from those topics. And so on this particular evening, we were looking at our bucket list list. I think that's how you say that right. I don't have great desires to visit exotic places. Don't know why, just don't. I don't have some wild and crazy things that I want to do before I die. But as we were talking, the two things that surfaced out of my life that are on my list is I want to walk all three daughters of mine down their aisle on their wedding day, Lord willing. And I would love to hold all of my grandkids one day, Lord willing. I had a doctor's appointment recently, nothing catastrophic, but... My blood pressure's high. My family has a history of heart issues. And I have about 50 pounds that I need to lose. And while I want to be healthy and I know the path to being healthy, I keep returning to the same fast food joints. I keep avoiding the exercise that I know I should be doing. 
And what I'm realizing is I have a self-control issue. And that's really hard to admit to myself. And it's even harder to admit in front of 400 people. But it's true. It's where I'm at. And if I'm to be really honest, there's a part of me that's scared. That my choices are going to neglect me and my family of precious memories that I want to have with them. And I don't actually know if I have it within me the willpower to change these things. And I know I need to trust God and take it to him, etc. But that's where I'm at with this issue. And it's a really hard one for me. You see, when, our kids in our, when the kids in our lives see us working through our issues that are hard for us, they get to learn from our mistakes. But even more than that, they get permission to not have to look like they're perfect. They get permission to not have to hide their stuff. When we only share our triumphs, we're sharing a faith that may not feel applicable to their lives when things get hard. But beyond how we each individually receive kids and youth into our lives, we as a church have a corporate responsibility to let our children and youth know that we know that they are every bit as an important part of the body of Christ as we are. I think we do that through our programs. The programs that A, do serve them directly, but also all the other stuff that we can invite them into to serve alongside of us. Because you know what? God has given them the same kinds of gifts that he's given us. And so as our programs serve our kids and as our kids serve in our programs, we get to build this faith experience for them that gives them permission to be who they are. In our programs for our kids and youth, We've recently committed to pursuing two things with everything that we have. The first thing we do is we want them all to make sure they have a person in their life who believes in them. We're in the process of retooling our programs to make sure they're relationship-focused. We want every one of our kids and youth to have an ally here at Faith that's not related to them, that could come alongside of them and say to them, look at all the wonderful things that God has done for you. Look at all the wonderful things that God has promised to us. Wrong sheet. Hold on. Here we go. On the back of that bulletin insert, you'll see 137 names, and we missed a few on this, but you'll see 130 names of people who've said, God, I'll welcome the children. I'll welcome them in your name. And for some of you, as you've heard me talking about the next generation, there's probably something that's been stirring inside of you where you're like, huh, I wonder if that's for me. So many of you are already doing that. But for some of you, maybe you've heard some of your own story coming out in those statistics and you wonder, man, what would it have been like for someone to come alongside of me when I was young? When I was struggling with those things, what would it have looked like if I had an ally who said, look at what God has done for you. Look at what God has done for all of us. What if one day one of our kids 
one of the ones whose name's on this list, is standing on this very stage or maybe a stage at a different church telling their story. And what if a key part of their story includes your name? Where they were talking about, I was at a hard point in life or I was asking questions and I didn't know what was going on. But you know what? Fill in the blank with your name. Came alongside of me and showed me what it was to follow God. If you feel like maybe, maybe that's you, maybe God's tugging on your heart to be that person, the connection card is a great response tool. Fill out your name on there, make sure your contact information's legible, but then on the back, it says, sign me up for more information about serving in our next-gen ministry. Right now, our teams are operating in amazing fashion. They're doing incredible work, but we've turned our eyes towards the summer. We need 68 people to say, yes, here I am, God, send me for the summer. And we also have our eyes all the way on next fall, where we need 86 people to say, God, here I am, use me. Our core needs include a need for leaders to lead our small groups at every phase, preschool, elementary, middle school, and high school, and musicians. If you are a musician or you have musical capabilities, uh, our kids have been asking us, almost begging even, to worship. Like, we need music. We want to worship. <laughs> like, it's an amazing thing when you have high schoolers coming to you saying, please let us worship. And I would love to say, yes, but I have no musical aptitude. <laughs> I told them I would go find musicians, and so this is me finding musicians. If you have those skills, please, please come join us. We're going to have some fun. But the second thing that our kids need is, A, they need a person to believe in them. So they need many of you in this room to stand up and say, yes, I'll be that person. But in addition to that, they need a place to belong. This building has served us well and continues to do so, but we are running out of room. In the last four years, our preschool and elementary ministries have doubled in size. And the kind of ministry we want to do with middle school and high school students is completely different than what we've done in the past. It's similar. I wouldn't say completely different. That's not fair. But we just want to enhance the relationship side of what we're doing with our kids. And we need a different kind of building to do that. Many of you are aware that we're in the midst of our Making Room campaign. And that building was designed with some of these core values in mind focusing on relationships, the people that we're placing in our kids' lives so that our kids have someone to go to, so that they could huddle around a table with their peers and with leaders and know that they have an advocate and know that they have a place to belong. Fulfilling our desire to be a place where children belong doesn't rely solely on a building, though. It requires our church to become the kind of church, to have the culture that's talked about in Mark 9, and two weeks ago, when I was teaching our young people on Sunday evening, I told them this idea of creating a place to belong is actually something we don't have full control over as adults. They're going to have to own that. You guys as youth, the young people in the room, you guys are going to have to own that too. You're going to have to look for the person who's sitting alone. You're going to have to welcome them into your circle so that you can learn about their story and make sure they too have a place to belong. So a place to belong and a person who believes. 
I believe with all my heart that we as a church need to sacrifice of our times, of our time and our resources to provide these two things for the next generation. And not just for a few of our kids, for all of them. Would you join me in praying that faith could be a place where all of our kids feel safe? A place that fosters a God-centered self-worth focused on the truth that God says about us and not what the world says about us. A place where our kids are free to live honestly about the hard things that are going on in our life and a place where we too can live like that. Would you pray with me that this place, that this church could be a place that feels like home? Jesus, um, you are good to us. And you've entrusted so many young people to our care. And watching them grow, watching them mature has been one of the greatest privileges of my life. And so thank you, God, for putting me in this position. But I pray that we as a church would all live in this free way that reflects you boldly to our kids, that we would get behind them and we would push them forward and their God-given gifts, so that they may lead us, so that they may lead your church to the place you want it to go. May we learn how to carefully guide them, but may we also learn how to follow them. May we challenge the borders of what's safe and allow vulnerability to be just something that's very natural in our lives for our kids for each other, for our church. We're grateful for you, God. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.